Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Monday, December 16th, 2019. On today's episode, we're going to have a spoiler-filled discussion about the ninth and possibly final episode of HBO's Watchmen entitled See How They Fly. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by my Watchmen podcast cohorts, writers Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello, folks. Uh, right up at the top, guys, once again, I want to thank uh, Chris Kiochidna for the opening theme song to these episodes and to Twitter user at uh, SirZaps with a Z for the logo, which we've been using in the Podbean player for all these episodes. Um, I feel like they've given these episodes a little bit of uh, extra kick and, and sort of, um, you know, helped us carve out our own sort of unique identity uh, among the or, you know, within the Slash Film Daily feed. So thank you to again to, to those two. Um, for providing us with those throughout the, the course of the season. Uh, guys, this is the last episode of Watchmen, and um, I mean, I'm, I'm a little bummed about that, but uh, w- how are you guys feeling, uh, you know, a- a- as this whole thing has, has finally come to a close? Um, we'll talk about maybe a potential season two later on, but I just want to sort of take your temperature. What do you guys think like, in terms of, like, overall thoughts on how the show sort of came together before we get into it? Uh, I'm I'm very happy with it. I I think this is without a doubt the best show of the year. Um, I do think it's sort of kind of abandoned its thesis statement near the end. Like it started off really being about race in America, and I feel like these last few episodes kind of just stopped worrying about that, and you know became more about Doctor Manhattan and. On one level, I'm a, I'm a little disappointed they, they couldn't find a way to keep that storyline going, that momentum going. On the other hand, I really like what they did, so I can't complain too much. Okay. HT, what about you? What a ride. Yeah, this was a, a series that took me by surprise, despite my anticipation for it. And I think that they really kept it up with every episode. And um, just like the character arcs and the character writing and the acting, as well as just the really ambitious uh, sort of 
reworking of the Watchmen graphic novel into something a little bit more modern. And I do agree to an extent with uh, with Chris about the overtake, like how Dr. Manhattan kind of overtook the story um, and it became a little bit less focused on the racial aspects. But I do think that they provided like an essential sort of foundation for mm-hmm. that for that arc. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that it I was honestly amazed that they were able to wrap up everything that they did in that uh, final episode. And um, while I do have a, a few criticisms, mostly dealing with um, the aspects of uh, the Vietnamese, the depiction of Vietnamese refugees and how we don't really see the the consequences or the fallout from that and Dr. Manhattan's actions in the Vietnam War. Um, but other than that, I think that this was a really excellent series of uh, television. And I kind of, I mean, I kind of hope they don't go for a second season, but if they do, I would hope that they dig further into some of the social issues that they touched on but didn't completely dive into. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think with everything that all of you have said, I agree that it sort of felt like I mean, this is an amazing feat of TV. Like, I'm so glad that this thing exists. It does feel like the the attention, the the um, I don't know, the the purpose of the show seemed to shift a little bit uh, as the season went on. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that as we go. But uh, yeah, overall, I'm I'm thrilled with. It. I, I think I would give this, you know, maybe even like a 10 out of 10 in terms of like a season of television. It's like one of the most incredible things that I've seen in a long, long, long time. So. Uh, while I have some some nitpicks throughout, um, I think you know taking a step back and looking at what Lindelof and his team of, of writers and directors were able to accomplish is uh, is a pretty amazing thing. So, um, okay, let's dive into this episode. Uh, actually, before we do that, let's I'm going to read a couple emails here that we got since this is our last time that we're going to be able to do this. Um, let's see. Mitch from Wellington, New Zealand said, uh, in your last Watchmen spoiler discussion, you briefly, briefly wondered if Angela and Cal's adopted kids might inherit Dr. Manhattan's powers. If you rewatch episode two, you might consider that they already have, or at least one of them. About halfway through the episode, to- uh, Topher is seen building a floating replica of Dr. Manhattan's Europa mansion. I think one of you guys, maybe both of you guys mentioned that on, on the episode, but... Um, uh, Mitch says, I would love to get your thoughts on whether this might mean that Topher has been given some of Dr. Manhattan's powers. So um, while that is not made explicit in this episode, I was wondering what you guys thought about that. Like, you know, we've seen Cal feeding the family over the course of this uh, season. Do you think that, um, and, and we'll talk about the the egg thing and Angela walking on the water and all that at the very end of this episode, but uh, do you think that there's a possibility that... Um, I guess like subtly, you know, like uh, the seed could have been planted for those adopted kids to also have inherited some of those powers potentially. Um, I don't particularly think so because when they adopted the kids, uh, Dr. Manhattan was still kind of dormant inside Cal and, you know, Cal doesn't have knowledge of his powers unless he's in some sort of life threatening danger. So I don't think that would be the case, but um, yeah, I wonder if maybe he like, left something behind uh, that aside from the egg for Angela. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, okay, one more from, or actually uh, two more. Uh, one is from Brian L. from Greenwood, Indiana. He says, after listening to your Watchmen Episode 8 podcast, I wanted to toss out a theory. I think that the tomato tree on Europa is like the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. I believe that Vite eating that is giving him godlike knowledge and power. Not only would that explain how he was able to continue to pull babies out of the lake, but it it would also explain why he knows he'll need the horseshoe. 
Dr. Manhattan does tell Angela in the bar that he can pass his abilities to those who essentially eat it. I also think back to when Veidt shot a buffalo and received a letter from the game warden saying he violated the agreement. What if the agreement was that he could have those abilities and knowledge if he could, if he understood that he could never return to Earth alive, at least? I just wanted to toss that out there. So obviously Brian uh, wrote that before this, you know, last night's episode aired. Um, but I thought that was an, an, an interesting theory and like the idea that uh, maybe a potential agreement was reached that we didn't actually see, I think was sort of borne out, um, you know, in this episode, like the, the conversation, the final conversation that Adrian Veidt has with the game warden. It seems like there's a little bit more to their relationship um, there than what we originally uh originally thought so i think brian was was ultimately on the right track there and then maybe the most interesting email that we got is this one from andrew he says full disclosure i interned at the rogers and hammerstein organization in college i just finished the season finale of watchmen and since that performance of oklahoma in the first episode i've been wondering why it was so prevalent in the series i mean i know the answer the musical uh, musicals copyright expires in 2043 and the estate is trying to get any possible uh, revenue from the property before it enters the public domain but as Oh What a Beautiful Morning played while Angela and her family left the theater at the end of the episode, I couldn't help but connect the construction of Oklahoma and this series. Oklahoma was the first quote-unquote book musical to connect scenes with songs that actually informed the plot and choreography that actually had meaning for the characters. Replacing the old uh, vaudeville-style musicals that were just constructed with some loosely connected scenes and cutesy songs that can be performed for anything without any needed context. As Angela and company went out into this beautiful morning after saving the world, I realized that just as Oklahoma rewrote the rules for what musicals can be, this Watchmen rewrote what we as audience members should be uh, should ask for from our superhero media, holding up a mirror to our world in their stylized method. All my best, Andrew. So I thought that was really um, an interesting uh, reading on the parallels of Oklahoma and Watchmen and since I am not familiar with that show, I haven't really given that much thought, but it, it sounds like somebody who uh, is familiar with that show has given it a lot of thought. So I, I appreciate that. And, and for all the uh, Oklahoma heads out there in the, in the audience, uh, maybe that will resonate with you. Um, have either of you, are either of you familiar with the musical Oklahoma? I don't, I don't remember if we talked about that after the first episode, because that, that was when it, basically the show, like one of the first scenes of the show is like an all black cast of Oklahoma. And I don't recall what we said about that at the time but do you guys are you familiar with that play at all i've never seen it but i have sung the main song in like middle school chorus oh nice <laughs> so that's like the closest thing i had to it chris did you sing the song in middle school chorus no i didn't i i haven't seen the musical but i do know some of the songs from it so okay you know. All right. Well, thank you to the uh, the emailers, regardless. And uh, yeah, let's jump into this episode. So let's let's kick things off talking about Adrian Veidt. Um, the episode opens with uh, a sort of a flashback to him recording the Robert Redford video that explains his whole plan. And uh, we see that Bian, um, who's Lady True's mom, uh, basically like steals a sample of his semen and impregnates herself. I was wondering what you guys thought about this, because, like, what do you think her motivations were for doing that? We don't get much insight into her mindset at all, um, really, over the course of the whole show. Obviously, like, she's been uh, cloned, and then her memories have been put into Lady True's quote-unquote daughter, but we don't really get much insight into what her headspace is. So, based on what we saw in last night's episode, what do you guys think her motivations might have been for impregnating herself there? Um, HT, let's start with you. Um, it seemed like some form of vengeance. I think when she uh, shoots up 
the, the sample into herself. She says death to the conquerors or the the imperialists. I can't remember. Is that what it was? Yeah, she's um, like quoting, I think, uh, a speech from the actual, like the legendary Lady True, like the, the real mm-hmm. world one. So mm-hmm. um, that seems to be, yeah, she's talking about like, I want to ride the strong winds and crush the angry waves and I will not bend my back to be a slave. That's some of the stuff that she mm-hmm. says there. Yeah, which is interesting because I don't think that whatever her plans were actually do come to fruition because Lady True, her daughter, ends up, uh, you know, kind of becoming, uh, molding herself up in the same vein as Adrian Veidt and becoming a raging narcissist, as we later find out, mm-hmm. um, and not really taking whatever vengeance uh, the original Beyond probably presumably wanted. So I wonder what her intention was. I'm guessing it has something to do with taking the power of, you know, the white man, of the white conquerors, and trying to use it against them in some way that, um, you know, upsets the status quo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, we do see some of that because Lady Shu, of course, is like the richest woman in the world and the most powerful woman in the world, and she does take over Veidt's company. Um, but... Yeah, I, I do wonder, because I think Lady True, too, is the only Vietnamese character uh, we've seen who holds any kind of power like that. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess, like, in some way she does achieve that, but um, it's nothing that's made clear enough or is, like, you know, as a sort of eat the rich as that uh, speech would suggest. Mm-hmm. Chris, did you have any thoughts about that? No. <laughs> no thoughts, okay. <laughs> I, I honestly don't know what it was about. I, 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 I think what HT said makes a lot of sense. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah. I, I was sort of struggling to come up with something. And, you know, one of my like very basic thoughts was just like, she's performing these menial tasks. You know, she's a Vietnamese refugee. There, there seemed to be a lot of them employed there at the time, but she is, you know, essentially working as a janitor. And like the, the idea of like, I will not bend my back to be a slave. Um, you know, evoking this this uh, Vietnamese warrior woman. Yeah, it just sort of seemed like she was trying to recapture some sense of power. And I, I guess, you know, she maybe she knew somehow what was going to happen. Maybe she realized the implications of Adrian Veidt's video and, and the, um, you know, the massive, like, world-changing, uh, yeah, implications of, of what that means and knew that, um, or, or at least strongly suspected that everybody in that building was not going to make it out of there alive. Because I think in the comics, it's like either explicitly said or, or certainly implied that Veidt, like, murders everyone who knows about, you know, all of his employees and, like, the scientists that help him design the squid and all of that kind of stuff. I think they're, you know, there are a handful of, of hero characters that make it out that know, but uh, but that's pretty much it. So I, I'm, I think we're meant to understand that, like, all of those employees who were there were killed, ultimately, and she escaped and, and you know, passed on uh, part of Adrian to this this woman. So... Um, maybe she <laughs> she had some sort of knowledge about what might be coming. Maybe she could she could have seen that coming somehow. But uh, okay, so Lady True shows up in the year 2008. She shows up at Karnak. Uh, somehow she got there. I don't know. It's unclear. But um, she calls Veidt's Squid Rain a rerun, which I thought was interesting. Like Damon Lindelof, I, I read this interview uh, with him at Rolling Stone, and he talked about how um, basically the idea of doing that is like this meta commentary on. Uh, you know, him as like a writer, basically recycling 
the imagery that we've seen before in the show and like he at first he sort of like almost took offense to the notion of like calling that out because that's exactly what he's been doing but he he ultimately realized that that was the right move uh, was to call that out and uh basically it all boils down to lady true saying that she wants to make every nuclear device in the world disappear which is something that adrian veidt you know in all of his infinite wisdom never even considered and um i i guess this is maybe a good point to talk about whether or not we think Lady True was actually going to be a like the savior that she promised, uh, or whether or not, um, or, or whether the show's thesis that like anybody who desires this much power should never have it was probably the ultimate was the right move. So, what do you guys think about that? Like, do you think we got enough of Lady True? to be able to to have a good read on whether or not she would have been responsible with Dr. Manhattan's powers should she have acquired them. Um, H.T., what do you think? Hmm. I have kind of complicated uh, thoughts about this because, um, well, I was going to get to this later, but I'll get to this now. Um, uh, I think that this, while the series has had a really excellent um, grasp of black and white racial issues, it has a little, been a little bit more tenuous when it comes to dealing with um, its Asian characters, specifically its Vietnamese characters and sort of the fallout of um, the Vietnam War and and uh, the refugees that came from it. And the uh, casting of Lady True as being like this you know, all-powerful figure who is as dangerous as Adrian Veidt uh, was interesting, but a little... Uh, lacking for me because in some cases it felt like the depictions of Asians in uh, films before like Get Out for example where the Japanese characters are uh, deemed as powerful as like the white characters and the racial issues with with Asians are kind of glossed over uh, it kind of teeters on that with um, the the treatment of Lady True I mean I, we do see from like up until now that she is incredibly smart, incredibly powerful and incredibly ruthless. So there is a hint at that. But I wondered, I wish we had gotten a little bit more um, specifically of like Lady, of Bian and like her raising Lady True and what how Lady True came to be this way. And um, so that's uh, my sort of complicated thoughts on this matter yeah yeah no i agree i, I think you know if there, are I, I have like a couple qualms with the show and some of the characters motivations and i just wish that you know they're they're relatively clear for the most part as it exists in the show but i just wish that maybe this was like this is one of the rare times that i wish we had maybe like one more episode of the show to sort of be able to just like spend a few more minutes with each of these characters and and sort of get into their headspaces a little bit more um chris do you have any thoughts on that no, I, I think I'm in that same place. I do think I didn't have as much trouble with it, but I'm also, you know, looking at it from the perspective of a <laughs> a, a white guy. So I, I obviously didn't pick up on all of the, that stuff, but I, mm -hmm. I do definitely see it. Um, I really think what makes it work for me is uh, Hong Chao's performance, which is so like <laughs> she does such a great job of playing this character as someone who thinks she's doing the right thing, but you can sort of see that she's kind of blinded by her own ambition. And that's more in her performance than it is in the writing. So I, I give a lot of credit to 
how she plays it for how it worked for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, okay, so she asks uh, Adrian Veidt for money, and he says, I will never call you daughter. Of course, you know, she also tells him that this space probe is coming, which is like a very convenient bit of uh, information for her to depart to him at that, or impart to him at that exact time, because, of course, he remembers that later on and knows, you know, exactly how to uh, contact her. And he, he spells out, save me daughter, which is something that we speculated about on the podcast before. Uh, so yeah, all of that is sort of like, um, I guess this episode as a whole, it wasn't as nearly as, um, uh, structurally or like formally ambitious as some of the other episodes have been. But I think because there were so many questions that they had to answer, I I think they just sort of like took the, the straight shot to the end instead of, um, doing anything super creative with the episode. What'd you guys, what do you make of that? Yeah, this is definitely the the most um, quote unquote normal episode of the show, and uh, I get why they did that because you know they're at the end and they got they have to answer all these questions. But I did think it was interesting that like every episode leading up to this was so formally uh, what's like the word audacious, daring, yeah, any of that. Yeah, it was, it was so like <laughs> unlike anything else. Then this one's sort of like oh, this is a standard episode. Uh, you know, but I, I get why they did it. I do appreciate, you know, the pacing kept it, you know, there's like never a, a, a lull in this episode. It mm-hmm. just pretty much races to the end. And I think, uh, you know, a testament to its success is I, I didn't come away disappointed. I didn't come away being like, ah, oh, I wish they had not rushed it. Like it didn't feel rushed. It didn't feel like they were cutting corners. So even though on one level, yeah, it's, it's a very, um, normal episode on another it's you know a very (laughs) well thought out episode so i I can't fault it too much for that yeah i think if if they had done something maybe a little bit more daring in uh instead of providing some of these answers i could definitely see how that might have been a not ideal outcome for the show so ultimately i appreciate the decisions that they made in, in in that regard but um, okay, so there's uh, Vite has this confrontation with the game warden on Europa. Um, I wanted to bring up this this uh, reference to. So, are you guys familiar with the music of James Taylor <laughs> by any chance? The uh, yes. uh, troubadour guitarist. Um, my parents uh, grew up, or I guess I grew up listening to James Taylor through my parents, and he has this song called "Line 'Em Up," which came out in the '90s sometime. And the first verse of the song is. I remember Richard Nixon back in 74 and the final scene at the White House door and the staff lined up to say goodbye, a tiny tear in his shifty little eye, and he said, nobody knows me, nobody understands. These little people were good to me. I'm going to shake some hands. And I, I like the framing of Vite, you know, after he sort of, uh, <laughs> I think he impales the game warden with his horseshoe. After he does that and he's walking to this uh, this ship this rocket ship that um, lady true has sent to pick him up um there's this overhead shot of like all of the phillipses and crookshanks lined up and it, it just reminded me of that like thinking of of um Vite as like this uh you know authority figure who this is sort of fallen authority figure um and and walking down those lines uh it just reminded me of that james taylor song so i, I realize that's a super obscure reference that probably nobody is gonna <laughs> understand or think of but me but um anyway i just wanted to bring that up so what did you guys think of the europa stuff like the the jailbreak sequence um adrian fight rocking the ozymandias uniform and and the the fight with the game warden hc what'd you think 
I love that. I loved every moment that Jeremy Irons was on screen, honestly. And um, I do, I, yeah, I just really enjoyed seeing him just uh, go through that little hole, that path, uh, tunnel that he had dug. And um, basically it revealed that he, he had kind of orchestrated this whole thing this entire time because he was bored. Um, uh, the revelation that he had given the game warden the mask uh, because masks make men cruel. And um, he had done it so that he could bide time while he waited for uh, Lady True's probe to come and see his message. And it just really uh, hammers down like what a horrible person Adrian Veidt is, but he is just so fun to watch on screen. Um, and it was interesting too, seeing his fight with um, the game warden be- like get so physical because that's the first time we see him really like... Uh, break a sweat um and yet at the end he still kind of uh brushes him off and says he was not a worthy opponent opponent so it was just a a big you know it was a big play for him yeah yeah uh chris what did you think about that scene oh yeah i i i really (laughs) i i love that it's um underlying the whole message of these final episodes about you know just like god abandoning creations because first you know Dr. Manhattan created these people and then he left them. And now their, their second God is leaving them as well. And they, they can't catch a break. Those poor clones. I felt really bad for them. Yeah. As um, that ship flies away, it was so sad kind of yeah. like seeing them yeah. still standing there in those lines. It's like, what are they going to do? On the other hand, this resulted in my, my favorite moment of the, sh- the episode. Uh, it's the, the moment that made me be like, almost say, uh, like cry out. Holy shit. Where we find out that, Adrian has been that gold statue the entire time, which is like my favorite <laughs> reveal of this episode, which he's like, he's been there pretty much since the beginning of the show. And we didn't realize it. Yeah. I think there were some theories about that and we, we may have brought up one of them on a previous episode of the show. And I just, I, I don't know. I, I couldn't understand how that would happen, but it kind of made perfect sense when I saw it actually happen in the show. Like I, I love to like the little detail of um, when he steps into that ship and like the, uh, the, when, when they say something like prepare, prepare for launch or whatever, and he has to step back and they're like, please put your hands on your hips. Like they're basically <laughs> forcing him into that statuesque position because they know that he's going to be preserved that way. Um, I don't know. I, I thought that was really clever. Uh, HG, what did you think about that idea that, that, Vite has been this gold statue standing around this whole time. I love that. That was a really fun twist for the episode. And uh, yeah, one of like the kind of last twists that we had. And I felt like the the putting his hand on his hips was really nice too, because it were like a nice nod at his own ego. And he was like, of course, this is how I'm going to be in like um, uh, just suspension, like yeah. for this rest of this time. Like this is just like the, my natural pose. So that was fun. Yeah, it's like it, it kind of, um, you know, he he's standing there in this like regal uh, Ozymandias costume. And it's so, um, I guess, uh, the opposite of what people actually think about him, because there's that scene later in the episode where he talks to the, the newspaper stand guy and like is trying to ask. And, you know, he's so vain. He has to know, like, what the world thinks about Adrian Veidt. And the guy's like, yeah, nobody gives a shit about him. Like, he's whatever. And he's just so, like, disappointed in that. But uh, it just stands, you know, in in direct um, opposition to him standing there proudly with his hands on his hips, you know. 
Um, okay, so let's get into the, the final confrontation of the episode. Um, this is where most of the episode takes place. Uh, Senator Keene is monologuing. He, he's gathered the, the senior leadership of Cyclops slash the 7th Cavalry. Um, and Dr. Manhattan is captured in this cage behind him that's lined with the lithium the the melted down lithium batteries that we saw the 7k working with earlier in the season we were wondering what the hell their plans were for that and now that that was finally answered so he can't like teleport or or use his uh, i guess yeah maybe he just can't like teleport out through the through those bars but he can still use his powers because uh we see that he once um Joe Keen is uh, is vaporized by Lady yes. True. She, she he's turned into goo. Yeah, <laughs> she shows up. Um, she yeah, like I I think the order it was he flips the switch or, or has somebody flip the switch, thinking that it's going to transform him into a new Doctor Manhattan. But what it actually does is teleports the entire set into the middle of that like town square area, like the Greenwood area where the uh, the Tulsa massacre of 1921 took place. And uh, so, so, like, I guess the, you know, maybe we could get, let's start nitpicking some, like, logical questions of, like, how exactly did Lady True know that these people were going to try to infiltrate her facilities and steal these, you know, batteries or, or, you know, this technology and, like, put, uh, put it together in such a way that, like, she relied on them to put it together in such a way that it would do this exact thing. I don't know. There's a lot of, like, maybe logic questions that you could get into there, but I kind of didn't care because it, it sort of felt like, you know, the the type of, like, grand sci-fi stuff that happens at the end of the Watchmen comic book, and it just sort of felt, like, right to me that all of this sort of craziness was happening at the end of the show. Um, I guess let's talk a little bit about the, the vaporization. So, uh, what's her name? Um, I can't remember the character's first name, but Judd Crawford's wife uh, is listening to this speech from Lady True, and she, like, interrupts her and, and talks about, like, you know, like, I, I don't care about what you're saying. Just go ahead and do it. Like, we know that you're going to kill us. Just go ahead and do it. And Lady True actually does do that, and, and she just, like, basically flips a switch and vaporizes all these people. I'm wondering what you guys thought of this. Did, did you think that that was satisfying enough? Because for me, I kind of wished that she would have told Judd Crawford's wife to shut the hell up and finished her speech and then done it. Like, it seemed like that's where the show was going, but Lady True, I don't know if she just, like, got distracted or, or sort of lost her steam there and just decided to go ahead and cut to the chase and not mess with it but um what did you guys think of of that sequence and were you ultimately satisfied with the destruction of this uh you know horrible organization um i i think it goes a long way to pointing out how better at being a villain adrian Veidt is than any of these characters because in the in the watchman comic he has that line where he's like oh i'm not a you know a republic uh, villain in a, in a movie. I'm not going to monologue. And both Joe Keen and Lady True have these moments where they're like, they stop to, to monologue stuff and both of them fail in their tasks. Whereas mm-hmm. Adrian was very much able to drop his squid and kill millions of people. So he's, he's much better at this than they are because I don't know, he's smarter, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I- Sorry, Ken H.G. I, I think his monologue, he does have like a tiny monologue in the graphic novel, but then uh, he reveals that he had like pressed the button like five minutes ago or something. So he, right, yeah, he, he I, understands that he should do the task before he gets to the monologue, and these mm-hmm. characters don't realize that, and that's sort of what 
result in both of their downfall. Like they get cocky and uh, they both die horribly because of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, Dr. Manhattan sends Lori and Adrian Veidt and Looking Glass off to Karnak because like through via the sludge of, <laughs> of Joe Keen, yes. which I thought was great. First of all, like, I have to say that James Walk, uh, the the guy who plays Joe Keen, he has sort of just like been standing around doing like a eh, quasi decent Southern accent for most of the show, but he finally gets like a showcase moment here in the in that monologue. Like as horrible as the stuff that he's saying is, I thought it was a great performance from that guy. So um, I was pleased to see that he actually had a little bit uh, more to do than than. Uh, maybe what we originally thought when the, the show first started. Um, I guess as a brief aside, though, Chris, we talked last week about Jim Beaver, and I was hoping that he would be the guy who was teleported away, you know, like uh, on the, the White Knight. And nope, no Jim Beaver. He's just, he was there for that one, you know, two-minute shot and then, or two-minute scene, and then that's it. So Yeah, that's really weird. I don't know. I mean, you know, good for him that he's getting work, but it seems, it seems like a big waste of Jim Beaver to have him literally just show up to sit on a porch and then they never see him again. I, I thought that was, that was very odd. Yeah. Um, HT, were you satisfied by the destruction of the, uh, the seventh cavalry and, and Cyclops? What did you make of that? I was actually very satisfied with that scene because, um, I did like when, you know, I can't remember her, Judd's wife's name. Um, but when she interrupts Lady True during her grand speech and just like, let's just kill us. And then Lady True does that. Mm-hmm. I liked it because it, felt like she didn't have like they weren't wor- uh, worth wasting their her breath on it uh, cuz mm-hmm. there's that's what white supremacists deserve they're just uh there's something that that should be disposed of immediately and it felt like something you know kind of cathartic because Will Reeves had been working to bring them down for so long and finally they're just like gone in a second so i it was satisfying to me yeah, and I think she says something like, I'm giving Will justice in, in that moment, um, which, you know, hooded justice, giving him justice. I thought that was a nice touch. And and it also, like, finally this episode sort of cleared up some of the questions I had about Will Reeves' relationship with Lady True. Like, you know, is he actually on her side? Like, what's going on here? And, and we realize later, like, the that he, you know, he's not sad that she died, basically. Like, he, he knew that he had to make a deal with her, and that was all Dr. Manhattan's idea. Like, we find that out later on, too, so... Um, so, uh, yeah, as, uh, as Dr. Manhattan sends Lori and Vite and Looking Glass off to Karnak, he is then killed by Lady True, which I guess is like, you know, if she's willing to kill this guy to take his powers, maybe that's an, uh, a little hint about, like, the type of ruler that she would be. Like, maybe, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's enough for Lindelof and for the, the writers to, to, um, I don't know, imply that she wouldn't, that, that eventually her power would corrupt her kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. Uh, Looking Glass, of course, knows when the last squid fall was. I thought that was a nice touch, like a, a callback to, um, you know, uh, Tim Blake Nelson and the great performance he gave in that sort of solo episode where we show that he he was so, um, you know, drastically, his, his entire life has revolved around this squid attack and, and the ramifications of that and all of that stuff. Like, it's a good thing that he was sent to Karnak because he's the only person there who would really know, you know, off the top of his head when the last Squidfall was. Um, and Vite ultimately decides to destroy Lady True and, and you know, freeze the squid that we've seen fall in the, in the first episode. And um, the only sort of complaint that I had about how all of this played out was 
we see that first squid fall and uh, Lady True holds up her hand and there's a massive hole through it. And it's very like Jesus imagery. Like, and she's also wearing that hat earlier that sort of looks like a halo. And there's the cross from the seventh uh, cavalry set that is sort of in the, in the background. And that, that falls over as she finally dies. But um, the, the, the sheer violence, the, the speed at which that thing fall hurdles through the sky, it's enough to put a hole in her hand, but then the whole rest of all of that squid fall kind of seems like it's not really that consequential. Like that, you know, that I think Adrian Veidt has some line about like, it'll be as if we're pointing a Gatling gun down at the ground from the sky or something like that. And I, I was thinking like, Oh wow. If, if one of these things put a hole through lady true's hand, every single person within a five mile radius or whatever is going to be completely obliterated, just like looking like Swiss cheese, you know? And that seemed to be like the one time that something with that much force came and the rest of it was just like, oh, Angela can run out for a second in it and be fine and grab this uh, lid and put it over her head and, you know, run run inside to the theater to safety. What did you guys think of the way that the squid fall thing happened? Was that... Um, par for the course or, or uh, were you left slightly disappointed like I was, or was that okay for you guys? I mean, I'm on the same page as you. I kind of, when he said that Gatling gun line, I almost figured that the buildings would be affected too, that there'd yeah. be no shelter. Um, so it felt strange to me that only lady true was really affected. Um, the only way I can rationalize it maybe is by thinking that maybe the, the millennium clock brunts a lot of, Cause like that's up in the air and that takes most of the damage. So maybe that's sort of like blocking most of the, of the, the heavier stuff mm. and like one gets through and hits her hand, but a lot of the others end up, you know, getting trapped on that. That's the only thing I can think of beyond that. It's also just, this is what we need to happen. Yeah. This is how it's going to happen. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay. So uh, back at, I also do want to oh, point yeah. out that the, the um, hat that she wears is a traditional Vietnamese hat. Usually worn at weddings, actually. Oh, cool. Um, and it does look like a halo. So I thought I like I thought that was an interesting touch, especially like her all white garb. Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's certainly like a you know like a messiah complex kind of thing going mm -hmm. on there. And um, white in Vietnamese culture is actually not worn um, that often. I mean, white is usually worn at funerals. Hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, actually, yeah, mostly worn at funerals. Huh. Well, she she dressed properly for the occasion, even though she didn't know about it. Um, so uh, back at, at Karnak, we see that Archie, the original um, uh, ship of Night Owl, is like just hanging out in like a storage facility kind of place. And Looking Glass and Lori decide to take Adrian Veidt in. Like after this whole thing with uh, Lady True, after the Squidfall plan has been executed, uh, it seems like, you know, everybody's just going to go their separate ways and, and Looking Glass and Lori are going to fly back to Tulsa and it's all going to be fine and, and Adrian's going to stay at Karnak and do whatever weird Vite shit he's going to do. But they decide to take him in. Um, Chris, I know you touched on this in your review. What did you think about this sequence? This is the only thing that doesn't really work for me. And I don't want to say Adrian deserves to not get caught because you know he did <laughs> murder millions of people but just something about the way this plays out seemed a little too tidy for me like you know Lori has had this secret for years and he's like ah oh, you've known this for years and now you want to do something about it and she's just like well people change and i'm like that's a really lazy way of getting around that and i just didn't i just didn't buy it and 
I mean, I know why it had to happen, but it seemed too. It seemed too nice, I guess I want to say. Mm. And I'm not and like I'm not saying this show didn't deserve a happy ending. And, you know, I, I like the way I love the way Angela's storyline plays out. But, you know, the Watchmen comic is notorious for not having a happy ending. And I felt like this was too polite. It's like, ah, the, the bad guy's finally going to jail. And that seems like at odds with what the, you know, the spirit of Watchmen in general. So I think that's kind of why it bothered me a little bit. AC, what did you think about it? Well, we never see Lori's turn, so to speak. Like she up until now had been this most cynical agent and we never see the sort of turning point where she suddenly gains that conscience back. And um, yeah, so I, I do agree with Chris to an extent. It works for me because I was like, oh yeah, like they have to wrap it up. And um, you know, maybe Vite is a little bit less uh, uh, alert because he has been driven insane for the past five years. So I was like, okay, it kind of works out for me. And I, I did like have a nice feeling seeing that happen and seeing him brought to justice in a way. But um, yeah, I, I think that like there was sort of like an in-between step missing there where we see how Lori got there specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, um, it's fine. It worked for me. I, I agree. I think because of the way this season was structured, it sort of feels like we've been away from Lori for a little bit too long and haven't had enough time with her to like understand her well enough for that decision to feel like it's the natural progression of that character you know I, I think that's that's sort of like where the, a little bit of the disconnect comes from for me like I, and I love the, the show and like how we got to spend so much time with these different characters and the flashback episodes and all that stuff but Lori's episode was I think the third episode of the show like her big her big you know entrance into this world and it just feels like we haven't really gotten to to spend much time with her since then so um yeah I, I agree I, I feel like that arc was like you know, it makes sense on paper, but it didn't. Something in the execution didn't quite come across as well as I, I think they would have hoped. Um, so, and and Chris, the interesting thing about what you were talking about is, like, I guess, I, I wonder if this, if they left it at this point on purpose for a potential second season, if somebody else wanted to to come in and make one, because we don't actually see Vite being brought to justice. Like, we just see him basically being knocked out and like put in that ship. There's a chance that he could escape. There's a chance that, like, uh, you know, like, the, you're talking about the end of the graphic novel, and, like, uh, Rorschach's journal gets passed off to this newspaper, and, um, you know, the the implication is, like, oh, they're going to publish it, and the world's going to change. But, like, as we saw in this show, it was published, but, like, nothing really happened. It kind of yeah. became, you know, just, like, a conspiracy theory kind of thing. So, like, even if uh, Vite is, you know, brought in, and arrested and and sort of like what does him being brought to justice look like do they actually go after robert redford and try to arrest him too like i don't know i, I feel um, like i do i do want to say the um on on ptpedia they uploaded one final article after the the finale and not only is this the article that pretty much confirms that p is lube man even though they don't say it in the episode it also really heavily implies that like the government is just covering up this fact still. Like there's a whole thing about how there's a, like, ah, agent Blake is back. And there's a rumor going around that she has info about president Redford, but we want to say it's not true. So it's basically like the FBI is, even though she brought, apparently brought Vite in the FBI is, is still willing to like 
cover that up because they don't want the truth to get out. So hmm. even though the show doesn't say it, the, the, the supplementary material heavily implies that at least right away there's there, that the cover up is still in place. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I guess like the episode finally ends back at, uh, at Greenwood, um, back in the theater where it all started. And, um, there's this, uh, interaction between Will and Angela, um, where he talks about when he was hooded justice and the feeling that he, the, the, I guess, primary feeling that he felt when he wore that mask was not anger, but instead fear and hurt. Um, and he says, you can't heal under a mask. Wounds need air. Um, HG, what did you make of that, uh, that final, like, uh, I guess like a kind of a sweet conversation between grandfather and granddaughter and with the, the revelation that her kids are safe on that stage as well. Um, yeah, I love that, that, uh, not confrontation, but that final sort of, uh, exchange between them. And I, yeah, I really love that line. You can't heal under a mask. Wounds need air because it feels like it's referring to the superhero genre at large and as well as just talking about facades that people wear in their day-to-day life and um, trying to hide, you know, whatever trauma they have under something else. Um, and I like that, like, that airing out of past hurts and grievances mm-hmm. and uh, putting that out in the open. It feels almost like a more democratic um approach to something that's been so um focused in like vigilantism and individualism and something and so i i really like that speech and um um yeah i I really liked how what a quiet little exchange this was Mm -hmm. uh chris this line resonated with you in in your review right like you you called this line out specifically what did you think about that yeah it's uh, it's great the whole scene I love the way it play. I mean, first of all, I love the whole cyclical nature where they end up back in the same theater. And uh, I just love the way the, the two actors play this scene. It's very quiet and it's very emotional and it, and it sells pretty much the arc of, of that character, both characters really about how, you know, th- you know, their, their choices and becoming costume vigilantes. And I, I really loved how it played out and I loved everything that came after it as well. <laughs> Yeah, the the cyclical nature thing reminded me of Lost uh, yet again. Like the idea of uh, the series beginning with Jack's eye opening and closing, or and and ending with his eye closing. Um, you know, starting starting back at the or beginning at the theater and ending at that same theater. Um, although there was a little bit more to the series. So uh, let's get into un, unanswered questions here. Um, do you guys think that Angela walks on the water at the end? I, I know it's like this Inception style ending um do you think that she walks on it and also do you think it matters that we don't know the answer uh, um, I, yeah go ahead i mean i love the way it was done where i love the you know, the inception thing where they they don't show us um i don't i want to say she does because otherwise the whole <laughs> the whole show has been a giant cheat and i don't think that's what the show is going for. But at the same time, you know, they intentionally don't show it. And, you know, th- there, there has to be something said about that. Like, you know, if they wanted to show it, they would have shown it. So I do like the somewhat ambiguous way it's handled. But at the same time, I, I think it's, it's pretty obvious that that is what happens just because it's too much, too much, too many coincidences. Otherwise. Do you agree? Is she? I think yes to both your questions. Yes, she walks on water, or rather, no, it does not matter, sorry. Yes and no. (laughs) 
yes, you are some water. No, it does not matter because it's just about our idea of, or rather like our hopes for where this, the story is going. Like it, if this sort of optimistic outlook for it. And, um, so yeah, I think that, that, uh, it's all about that litmus test of whether you think that this is going, this is a happy ending. Yeah. To me, it kind of only makes sense if she does walk on the water because Will told her, um, he says something like considering what Dr. Manhattan could do, he could have done more and kind of like almost gives her like a, (laughs) he doesn't quite like stop and wink at the camera, but it's kind of close. Like he gives her this sly smile and considering that we didn't see Will's full conversation with Dr. Manhattan earlier, there's a chance that maybe Manhattan even told Will that he would pass on his powers to Angela. There's also this shot of Angela, Will and the kids like uh, emerging from the Dreamland Theater where the marquee only has the letters D, R, and M lit up in the background for, like, Dr. Manhattan. I thought that was kind of a, <laughs> a cool thing. I didn't notice that myself, but I saw somebody post that that photo online. I was like, ah, I see what you did there, show. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, uh, I, think I, I would like to believe that Angela does walk on the water at the end. Also, you know, the I, I can't believe I didn't pick up on this, but... You know, the, the very first poster they released with uh, Regina King on it has her like very much bathed in blue light. And it's it was almost like they were telling us from the start where this yeah. was going. Yeah, that's true. I, I pulled this um, this quote from Damon Lindelof from this Rolling Stone interview, and I'll link to the whole interview in the show notes. And you should definitely read it if you're listening to this, because it's a very good sort of like a debrief of the whole show. Uh, but he talks about the ending and he says that the ending didn't feel like a cliffhanger to him. He said, I intended it to be just as much of an ending as the original Watchmen is. There's certainly a story to be told about whether or not Seymour publishes Rorschach's journal and un- undoes everything that Vite just intended to do. But that's not a story that I think would be particularly interesting. Let's for a second assume that there are two possible outcomes for what happens when Angela takes a step onto the swimming pool. Outcome number one is that she just sinks to the bottom of it and just uh, misunderstood everything that Cal told her and ate a raw egg and should probably go be treated for salmonella. (laughs) Outcome number two is that she starts to walk on the water and we realize that uh, she is imbued with godlike powers. That would certainly explain the promotional poster for Watchmen that we put out uh, 15 weeks ago. She's certainly looking a bit blue there. Let's just say either of those possibilities exists. I think neither one of those stories are going to particularly make for a compelling season of television. Others may disagree, but that's my feeling. So, um, yeah, I have a question. Um, Do you guys think that if she is imbued with Dr. Manhattan's powers, she will eventually become an uncaring god, same as him? Like, does she only get his powers or does her entire physical makeup also change and she begins this transformation into um, something beyond human and something that eventually does not care to you know, fix the world. Hmm. What do you think, Chris? Yeah, I don't know. I, I would like to believe she does not become, <laughs> you know, an, an unfeeling uh, jerk who doesn't care about stuff. That's another thing I got to... Man, I, I, I hate to nitpick because I, I really loved this show. I loved every pretty much everything that happened. But I really have an issue with how Dr. Manhattan is portrayed in this show versus how he is in the comic. And they make him a really, you know, yes, they do have that line that Will says where like, oh, he could have done more. And I, I do agree with that. But they make him really you know lovable in the show. And he's not like that in the comic at all. And I have a little trouble with with reconciling that because so much of the show gets the tone of the comic right. And even though they get, you know, the Dr. Manhattan mindset right, especially with that episode, you know, where it's jumping around in time, 
he's such a nicer guy in the show than he is in the comic. And it, it bothers me a little bit. Yeah, like, that nihilism is gone. Right. Um, and I, I get why they did it because I don't think – I think the show would have been much darker if they had kept him as nihilistic as he is in the comic. But – it, it does bother me a little bit. Like, why is Dr. Manhattan such a nice guy? I, it also kind of bothered me that he didn't acknowledge, like, Lori at all. Like, they were in a relationship for a very long time. And, you know, I get it that he's in that cage and his mind is a little warped. But he doesn't even, like, care that she's there. And it, that also doesn't line up with this lovable guy they turn him into. So I, I do think... I have a few issues with that. Yeah, a nod to Lori would have been nice, at least. Like, yeah, some like, sort of just like, a, like, hey, how you doing? Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I wonder if it's just because they really had to build up that relationship between him and Angela and make you really feel that. Like, you know, I guess if he was more, if he was as nihilistic as he is in the comic, maybe it wouldn't be believable that Angela would fall for him. Um, but, it, you know, it ends with, like, one of his last lines is, like, I'm in every moment we were together all at once. And it's, like, this really touching thing. And I, I don't think that's anything that um, that the Dr. Manhattan of the comics would have said, or at least with that much emotion. But yeah. um, it's yeah, a very it... fundamental change to his character because in the comics, um, he has, you know, so transcended humanity that he doesn't care for the small, uh, useless, redundant things. He's like beyond that. Um, but here, even as like he's portrayed as a god who only wants to be human and because he because of love. And while that's a really powerful and moving sentiment, I don't think it's something that you can necessarily just put on Dr. Manhattan because his character in the beginning is just like so fundamentally different mm -hmm. yeah um okay so other unanswered questions uh whatever happened to lube man we don't know what's the, what's the deal so chris we you know we talked last week we think he's agent pd uh and the the uh this week's pdpedia sort of bears that out again um yeah i guess knowing that what how can we like how does that knowledge add to that scene that we saw the lone lube man scene in this entire thing like knowing that it's agent pd if i'm remembering correctly angela was dismantling pieces of uh the wheelchair, the, the wheelchair yeah and throwing them over a bridge and she like turned around and he was just standing there like watching her and then they went on this chase and he just escaped into the sewers right like yeah. I, you know i think we speculated at the time like maybe uh, this person is, you know, if it was PD, maybe he's doing it on Lori's behalf, um, like watching her, trying to figure out what's going on. It seemed like he's sort of a rogue agent, though. Like, what what do you make of Lube Man now that the show is over? Um, I, I read another interview with Lindelof where he basically said, like, they sort of just like threw that character in there as kind of like a joke. And they had no idea everyone would like latch onto it and want to know more about lube man so i i do think it's kind of funny where this was like sort of like an accident in a way i think i remember did i i can't remember if i said this in the episode where we talked about lube man the first time but i compared him to cheese man in the uh, buffy the vampire slayer episode restless where it takes place entirely in a dream and everything there's like a, it's loaded with imagery and symbolism except for this one man who appears in all of the dreams just like carrying slices of cheese and it's nothing that has anything to do with everything else but um it's just there <laughs> thrown in for fun and that's now it it actually like my theory is correct lube man is cheese man yeah <laughs> <There you go. laughs> 
Uh, Chris, you were you were also talking right before we started recording. Like one of the uh, biggest lingering questions for you of the whole season was what's going on with that elephant. Yes, I please someone out there listening, if you have a theory, write in to what is it, Peter at slashfilm.com. Yes, because I I cannot for the life of me figure this out. I know we touched on you know the the old adage, uh, an elephant never forgets, but that's not a real thing. Like that's not like a, you know, uh, it's not like based in reality. So I can't f- figure out what the hell the elephant was about. It, you know, I, I, I guess on one point it's like a huge joke because you know there's that saying, Oh, we have to talk about the elephant in the room. And maybe, maybe that's literally all it was. It was little <laughs> off and company just having a huge laugh on our expense and literally putting an elephant in the room and, you know, Oh, now we have to talk about the elephant in the room. But beyond that, I don't know what the hell this was about. All, you know, Angela was hooked up to it. She was, I guess, pumping Will's memories into the elephant. And I had a split second thought where I was like, oh, all right. So rather than give the memories back to Will, he's putting them in the elephant so he doesn't think about them anymore. But that scene in the movie theater, he's talking about stuff he still remembers. So mm-hmm. he still has those memories. So that theory instantly was shot down. So I don't know. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out what the hell the elephant was about. I love the the image of Lindelof in the writers' room sitting around going, "What phrases or idioms can we <laughs> can we literalize on screen for literally no reason other than just to get people talking?" Uh, HT, you were not with us on the podcast episode where we talked about that. Do you have any thoughts about the this giant elephant that was all hooked up to these this contraption? Elef- elephant in the room. Um, well, my initial thought also was the adage that. Um, an elephant never forgets i think that's what it was because mm-hmm. um it it did show up in the post nostalgia episode when like laurie not laurie um angela was being you know pumped out of well the memories getting pumped out of her and i was like oh yeah it has something to do with like that's how they process nostalgia or something because elephants have good memory which i know is like not true but i was like oh that's fun so it's like a, fun <laughs> little, <laughs> a little flourish yeah, maybe it's like um, it, because it has to do with like uh, this being being sort of like a like a donor of spinal fluid or something like that. I don't remember exactly what they're what they're tapping into, but maybe it's just like practically speaking, it makes sense to get like the largest mammal that you can because you don't have to plug into a bunch of smaller ones. I don't know. I'm really grasping for straws there, but um, <laughs> yeah, if anybody has any elephant theories, please let us know. Yes, I demand an answer. Maybe I'll maybe I'll like email Lindelof's agent <laughs> and be like, can you please just ask him what this elephant is about? We we have to know. Yeah, just do it. You should definitely do that. That's I'll fun. even promise to not tell anyone if he wants it to keep it a secret. I just want to know. Yeah, <laughs> that would be great. Um, the and elephant then... stays in the room. Does it exist? <laughs> also, yeah, I hope that elephant is okay. I hope it wasn't like killed in the process. Yeah. I need to know these answers. <laughs> Um, so last week we also talked about like, what the hell is going on with this horseshoe? How exactly does Adrian Veidt, um, you know, incorporate this horseshoe into these Phillips and and Crookshanks? Like how is he able to like manipulate them at like the fetus level and like incept these ideas that, that they have to pass this horseshoe onto him at some point? Like how exactly does this whole thing work? And Lindelof touched on that in the Rolling Stone piece too. I'll I'll read a, a brief quote from him here. He says, I'll just leave it at this. Our intention in the pilot when he says he's writing a tragedy in five acts called The Watchmaker's Son is he is in fact referring to the play that we see 
performed in the second episode, it was also our intention that he has, in fact, written most of this, that all of the Crookshanks and Phillipses are part of a construct that Vite has decided, uh, has designed to prevent himself from going insane. That doesn't mean that everything they say is scripted, although some of it is. Crookshanks's closing argument at the trial is written by Vite. That's why she winks at him at the end, and we wrote it in his voice for her to perform. But there are other things happening on Europa that are improv. The game warden is tasked to do anything you can to stop me from escaping this place, and don't tell me how you're going to do it. And he is told uh, a Phillips, you have to give me a horseshoe when I need to escape. But they're so dumb and so programmed to please him that they're constantly trying to give him a horseshoe. It becomes a nuisance and eventually becomes something that gives him fits of rage. When they finally bake it in the cake, he knows, oh, I'm going to spend the next year of my life digging my way out. So I, I don't think that really answers any of the the logical questions of like how exactly he's able to program these beings. But uh, but there you have it, you know, straight from Damon Lindelof. So. I guess that's as close as we're going to get to answering the question of what the hell is going on with the horseshoe. So, um, All right. Lastly, do you guys want to see a second season of the show? HG, I know you talked on this or you touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, what do you think? You know, having seen having these nine episodes under our belts now, uh, do you want to see more? And and I guess a sub question is if Damon Lindelof doesn't come back, would you still be interested in seeing more? I'm of two minds because I was really satisfied with uh, Angela's arc and kind of that, how that story wrapped up. But um, like I was talking about before, I feel like this series didn't uh, dig into enough the um, the fallout of American imperialism and the consequences that it had on the Vietnamese people and the Vietnamese refugees. Uh, I actually want to give a shout out to this tweet thread by Viet Thanh Nguyen. He is the writer of the um, novel The Sympathizer. Uh, he's a Vietnamese American writer, and he has a great thread talking about um, how Watchmen, if there is a season two, would be would benefit from maybe doing a, having a focus on BN. And um, he talks to about how um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. in uh, Beyond Vietnam addressed both domestic racism and foreign imperialism as being intertwined and argued that we needed to deal with both. And I would have really loved to see Watchmen do that. And if there is a second season, maybe it can um, weave that in furthermore. And, you know, there's like we talked about earlier with Dr. Manhattan being kind of a neutered like a little neutered in this version, kind of like a little uh, bit nicer. Mm. Um, we don't see how, if at all, like that he deals with the consequences of the thousands that he killed when ending the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, how he is both idolized and hated in Vietnam. Uh, we see like glimpses of that, but I would really love to see like him try, like deal with that mm -hmm. as well as just uh, the show itself. So... That's my hope if there is a season two, um, and like I guess my big criticism of this series as a whole. Yeah, and we'll definitely link to that whole tweet thread in the uh, in the show notes, so check that out there. Um, Chris, what do you think? Do you are you interested in a second season of the show? Uh, you know, I, I am not. I I love this season. I, I I am a big fan of letting things end which is something our our current pop culture landscape never wants to do. Uh, case in point, there was a trailer for a new Top Gun movie this morning. People don't want to let things go. And I love the idea of a concrete 
finite story. Um, I also feel like if Lindelof is not coming back and he's, he's made it pretty clear in several interviews that he doesn't want to, I don't really think I trust anyone else to handle this material. I mean, I, I barely trusted him and he knocked it out of the park. So I, I have a hard time believing anyone else can pull this off, but I don't know if there is going to be one, I would love it to be like a completely different story. Like I would mm-hmm. love them to turn into like an anthology show where if they're making different seasons, kind of like, you know what they did with true detective they're if they're doing different seasons, have them tell completely different stories in this world. Like, you know, as much as I love Regina King, I don't really want to see what happens next. I like the way that this ending plays out where we're left, you know, did she walk on the pool or didn't she? I don't really want a second season where, you know, ah, Angela's becoming a God. Like I don't, I don't, I'm sure you could make something cool out of that, but I kind of like that. This is how it ended. So if there has to be one, do a different, do a completely different story. That's, that's my takeaway. Yeah, I agree with that too. Um, and I think maybe also like to add to that, maybe if you are, if you are, I feel like the world is big enough to justify a, a totally different story with a new group of characters and, and maybe, you know, touch on Dan Dryberg, who was mentioned in this, this show, but in the season, but never actually showed up. Um, maybe bring Lori Blake back or something like a couple familiar characters here and there. But if you, if you have to, um, I, I would, I would kind of like to see something happen before this show like where dr manhattan is not a part of it at all because like you guys were sort of talking about over the course of this episode he he sort of um you know once you introduce him into a season of television he he sort of dominates it and like so many questions are raised about his abilities and what he can do and why isn't he doing certain things and all of that that the entire focus sort of narrows to just him but in a but i feel like the Watchmen world is so interesting that that it could uh, sustain a show with a bunch of different characters, maybe, you know, vigilante, superhero, whatever, um, you know, running around in this world and, and getting into uh, adventures and what have you, um, but without the the sort of looming specter of, of Dr. Manhattan um, on this whole thing. I, I, I appreciate that they incorporated him into this season because I think it would be really tough to make a show about Watchmen that's like a direct sequel 30 years later and not touch on him because he's such a huge part of the comic but now that he's been addressed i feel like they would do um really well to uh, just basically forget that he exists for a little while so um and and chris you bring up true detective too that's an interesting uh, comparison point because what i don't want to happen is for hbo to realize that the show is successful and just like try to push a second season forward before it's ready i think you said in your review like you know give it a couple years like maybe wait on this and and do it like a a british tv show where they take the time necessary to you know actually craft a a story instead of like just trying to hit a release date for 2021 or whatever um so i I hope that hbo even though the show has been doing pretty well for them um it realizes that like this, the reason that it's been doing very well is because is because Lindelof and his writers actually did the work of breaking the story and, and crafting a, a mostly self-contained kind of arc. Um, so hopefully something like that can happen again, if a second season comes, but I, I also would be happy if, if they just were like, you know what? Yeah, it was a one and done. That's it. So, um, all right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of this episode. Is there anything else uh, about this episode or, or the whole Watchmen as a whole that uh, we haven't talked about yet or you guys wanted to uh, say any final words about, uh, HT? Nope. 
Watchmen, good. <laughs> Chris? Yes, Watchmen, good. I, I second that. <laughs> awesome. Watchmen, innocent. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, for sure. So, uh, yeah, thank you both to, uh, Chris and HT for, for joining me on these. I've, I've had a lot of fun uh, talking about the show with you guys and, and, um, yeah, dissecting it and all that. So hopefully the listeners have gotten something out of this as well. Cause I, I certainly have. So, um, yeah, let us, let us know listeners, if you want more stuff like this, more like shows where we devote entirely to an episode, because I'm curious to see if people actually want that or not, or if we, or if we've been just like, wasting our time for, for several weeks yeah if it's just been for my benefit of like oh i get to talk to two smart people about the show that i really love so um okay well yes uh i guess let's let's tell people where they can find more of our work online we actually have a bunch of great stuff coming to slashfilm.com like end of the year end of the decade coverage um so definitely visit slashfilm.com uh ht where can people find you online yeah, you can find me writing every day at SlashFilm.com, where I just publish my top 10 of the decade list. And you can find me on Twitter at HTranBooey. Chris? Also SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at Evangelista 413 You can find me at SlashFilm.com as well. I have some end-of-the-decade stuff coming up. Uh, there's a bunch of really, really good stuff at SlashFilm.com, so check that out. You can find more about Watchmen at SlashFilm in the show notes of this episode. And uh, Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns, and maybe elephant theories to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Please leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast on iTunes, tell your friends, spread the word, and we'll talk to you later.